parts of the doctrine of holy baptism are these three. First, that we with our children are conceived and born in sin, and therefore are children of wrath, insomuch that we cannot enter into the kingdom of God, except we are born again. This, the dipping in or sprinkling with water, teaches us whereby the impurity of our souls is signified, and we admonished to loathe and humble ourselves before God, and seek for our purification and salvation without or outside of ourselves. Secondly, holy baptism witnesses and seals unto us the washing away of our sins through Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are baptized in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. For when we are baptized in the name of the Father, God the Father witnesses and seals unto us that he does make an eternal covenant of grace with us and adopts us for his children and heirs, and therefore will provide us with every good thing and avert all evil or turn it to our profit. And when we are baptized in the name of the Son, the Son seals unto us that he does wash us in his blood from all our sins, incorporating us into the fellowship of his death and resurrection so that we are freed from all our sins and accounted righteous before God. In like manner, when we are baptized in the name of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit assures us by this holy sacrament that he will dwell in us and sanctify us to be members of Christ, applying unto us that which we have in Christ, namely the washing away of our sins and the daily renewing of our lives, till we shall finally be presented without spot or wrinkle among the assembly of the elect in life eternal. Thirdly, whereas in all covenants there are contained two parts, therefore are we by God through baptism admonished of and obliged unto new obedience, namely that we cleave to this one God, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, that we trust in him and love him with all our hearts, with all our souls, with all our mind, and with all our strength that we forsake the world, crucify our old nature, and walk in a new and holy life. And if we sometimes through weakness fall into sin, we must not therefore despair of God's mercy, nor continue in sin, since baptism is a seal and undoubted testimony that we have an eternal covenant of grace with God. And although our young children do not understand these things, we may not therefore exclude them from baptism, for as they are without their knowledge partakers of the condemnation in Adam, so are they again received unto grace in Christ. As God speaks unto Abraham, the father of all the faithful, and therefore unto us and our children, saying, I will establish my covenant between me and thee, and thy seed after thee, in their generations, for an everlasting covenant, to be a God unto thee, and to thy seed after thee. And this also the apostle Peter testifies with these words, for the promise is unto you and to your children, and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. Therefore God formally commanded them to be circumcised, which was a seal of the covenant and of the righteousness of faith. And therefore Christ also embraced them, laid his hands upon them, and blessed them. Since then, baptism is come in the place of circumcision. Therefore infants are to be baptized as heirs of the kingdom of God and of his covenant. And parents are in duty bound further to instruct their children herein when they shall arrive to years of discretion. That therefore this holy ordinance of God may be administered to his glory, to our comfort, and to the edification of his church. Let us call upon his holy name. Let us pray. O almighty and eternal God, Thou who hast, according to thy severe judgment, punished the unbelieving and unrepentant world with the flood, and hast, according to thy great mercy, saved and protected believing Noah and his family. Thou who hast drowned the obstinate Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea, and has led thy people Israel through the midst of the sea upon dry ground, by which baptism was signified. We beseech thee that thou wilt be pleased of thine infinite mercy, graciously to look upon these dear children and incorporate them by thy Holy Spirit into thy Son, Jesus Christ, that they may be buried with him into his death and be raised with him in newness of life, that they may daily follow him 
joyfully bearing their cross, and cleave unto him in true faith, firm hope, and ardent love, that they may, with a comfortable sense of thy favor, leave this life, which is nothing but a continual death, and at the last day may appear without terror before the judgment seat of Christ thy Son, through Jesus Christ our Lord, who with thee and the Holy Ghost, one only God, lives and reigns forever. Amen. We'll now proceed to the baptism and ask the questions of the parents, and so I ask you to rise now at this time. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have heard that baptism is an ordinance of God to seal unto us and to our seed his covenant. Therefore, it must be used for that end and not out of custom or superstition. That it may then, then be manifest that you are thus minded, you are to answer sincerely to these questions. First, whether you acknowledge that although our children are conceived and born in sin and therefore are subject to all miseries, yea, to condemnation itself, yet that they are sanctified, set apart in Christ, and therefore, as members of his church, ought to be baptized. Secondly, whether you acknowledge the doctrine which is contained in the Old and New Testaments and in the articles of the Christian faith and which is taught here in this Christian church to be the true and complete doctrine of salvation. And thirdly, whether you promise and intend to see these children when come to the years of discretion whereof you are the parents, instructed and brought up in the aforesaid doctrine, or help or cause them to be instructed therein to the utmost of your power. What is your answer, Justin? Amber? Kim? Stephen? Alana? Leighton? John? Michelle? Hannah? Walt? Well, dear parents, in a few moments, your children... You'll, you'll bring your children to be baptized, and it's a great privilege and a great blessing. Some of you are, have just become members here, and as a church, we want to officially welcome you and pray that you will be blessed and be a blessing among us. But now, as, as parents, you all will be bringing your children to be baptized, and, but their baptism is not something that you do. It's not something that I do as a pastor, although I administer the baptism. No, a baptism is something that really that God is doing. In the baptism of your children, God is really coming to them and, and with that, that, that water, that the sign and seal of his covenant, he is saying, your children are set apart from the world. They are set apart to him. And he is saying that that salvation that he has provided in Christ is a salvation also for them. So that they might be assured that looking to him in faith, they too may be counted righteous by God. We read about that, about how Abraham was accounted righteous before God by his faith. And baptism is a sign and seal of that also to your children. That looking to him in faith, they will be righteous. And so it's calling them. God is calling them. He's calling us all really as we witness the sign and seal to trust in Jesus. We are not saved by our works. We are saved only through Jesus Christ and his precious blood. And so what a great blessing, what a great privilege it is to have your children receive that sign and that seal, especially when we realize what, what it cost. It cost the Lord Jesus' blood. It cost his life. And now he may give, the Lord gives this sign and seal to you. How, what a blessing, how humbling it should be, and what a call it is then for us as parents, for you as parents, to teach your children about God's saving grace in Christ and call them lovingly to faith and pray that the Lord would work that faith in them by his Holy Spirit. And so may the Lord bless you also in that calling as you seek to raise your children in his ways. So now, we'll now proceed to the baptism. We'll, as we prepare, we'll sing together Psalter 425, verse 3. And then after the baptism, we'll stand to sing the same song, verse 5.
Mary Grace Braun, I baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Nora Mina Boss, I baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Savannah Lay Slingerland, I baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Walt John Van Heerden, I baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Victoria Estelle Van Heerden, I baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. It's just ordinary water. It's a sign of washing, just like you use water to wash yourself. See? Jude Alexander Vandenbroek, I baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Continue with the prayer of thanksgiving and then also pray for the Lord's blessing on our service together and also bring our various needs to him in prayer. And we'll remember also Taylor Boss uh, from Ryan and Elaine who's had complications from having her tonsils removed in the past week or so. And she is home and we're thankful for that, but we'll pray for the Lord's healing, continued healing for her. So let us come before the Lord in prayer. Almighty God and merciful Father, we thank and praise Thee that Thou hast forgiven us and our children all our sins through the blood of Thy Son, Jesus Christ, and received us through Thy Holy Spirit as members of Thine only begotten Son, and adopted us to be Thy children, and sealed and confirmed the same unto us by holy baptism. We beseech Thee through the same Son of Thy love that Thou will be pleased always to govern these baptized children, by thy Holy Spirit, 
that they may be piously and religiously educated, increase and grow up in the Lord Jesus Christ, that they then may acknowledge thy fatherly goodness and mercy which thou hast shown to them and us, and live in all righteousness under our only teacher, King and High Priest, Jesus Christ, and manfully fight against and overcome sin, the devil and his whole dominion, to the end that they may eternally praise and magnify thee and thy Son, Jesus Christ, together with the Holy Spirit, the one only true God. For Lord, you are worthy. You are worthy of all of our glory and all of our praise. When we think of who you are as the one true God, as the creator of all things, as a sustainer and as the redeemer and keeper of your people. Oh Lord, we bow in wonder, we bow in awe, and we bow in worship before you as a great and glorious Lord God. We, we come before you too as a father. Lord, we read in your word that you are more willing to give good things to those who ask more willing than even the most loving earthly parent. And so, Lord, we, we come then with, with humility. We come with boldness. We come with both childlike fear and childlike confidence to you. And we ask, Lord, that you would grant us good things. We ask that we would be granted the forgiveness of our sins. We have been reminded of our sins as we heard your law. And as we even saw the sacrament of baptism being applied, reminding us that we are sinful by nature. And so, O oh Lord, as we come before you, we confess our, our sins and our sinfulness, our, our sins in, in our, by our tongues, our, our sinful thoughts, our sinful desires and lusts. O oh Lord, we, even when we are, are saved by faith through Jesus, in Jesus Christ, we still struggle, and we still have remaining sin in us. And so, Lord, we, we pray that you would grant us the forgiveness that can only come through the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. And grant us, too, O oh Lord, your Holy Spirit. We sang it after we heard your law, Lord, that you would create in us a clean heart and renew a right spirit within us. That is our desire. That is our prayer as we come before you as a congregation this morning that you would not cast us away from your presence, and that you would not take your Holy Spirit from us, but fill us and grant us, O oh Lord, that we would live according to your will and thankfulness to you for your great salvation in Jesus Christ. Father, we pray too in thanksgiving for various blessings we've received, not only this blessing of the baptism of these children, but, but also, Lord, we think of another covenant child born in our congregation this past week, to, uh, a baby girl to Stephen and Izzy Van E, little Lila, Lord, we give thanks for that blessing and that everything went well. We pray that you would bless this, this family, bless the parents too, and bless this little girl as well, that she would not just experience earthly life, physical life, but that you would cause her by your Holy Spirit to be born again and receive that new life, that spiritual life through in Jesus Christ. We give thanks, Lord, for uh, earthly blessings this coming week, and we think especially of uh, Mr. Webbs, as he may celebrate, look forward to celebrating tomorrow his 89th birthday. Lord, you have given him many, many years, and we thank you for, for him. And we pray that he would know your blessing, and uh, as, he, as he remembers your faithfulness through the years to him, your grace to him, we pray that he would uh, be enabled to, 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 pray, to praise the Lord and to bring all of his cares and concerns also in his life to you. And we think especially of his dear wife, Mrs. Wobbs, who is still uh, very weak and suffering with pain and, and frailty of the body. Father, we pray that you would remember her and that you would please grant a measure of healing, Lord, that the doctors would be able to find what's going on and, and that what the pain that she's feeling would be able to be dealt with and managed. Lord, bless them and help them together as a couple in their old age. Father, we pray too for those for whom this uh, service, a service like this, and can be very painful. We think of 
those who would love to have children but have not been able to to this point. And Lord, what a, what a hurt, what a, what a pain that can be and how, how much it can be felt also at a time like this. And so we pray for them that you would remember them and that by your Holy Spirit you would shed abroad your love in their hearts and that they may know that comfort that comes from the love of God that passes the love of Christ, that passes knowledge, that we may all know that comfort. Lord, we are so prone to put our hope and our confidence and our, our trust in, in other things, in earthly blessings, in the gifts rather than the giver. But Lord, we pray that we would remember that to have the Lord is to have everything. He is the shield, the almighty God, the shield of his people. And their exceeding great reward. So we pray that we would know that also, each one of us in our hearts and in our lives. We pray for those who are dealing with sicknesses and weaknesses. We remember Dawson Beyer and Riley Rosendahl and also Taylor Boss. Lord, uh, remember them in their uh, physical uh, weaknesses and bring healing to them, we pray. And give them comfort and peace and that they might look to you in all things and also their families with them. Father, we pray now that you would please bless us with your presence. If your presence does not go up with us, do not take us up from here. And so as we turn to your word, we pray for your Holy Spirit that he would be at work in our hearts and lives. Lord, that those who have come here full, thinking they have no need of anything, would see their great need and that those who have come here needy, hungering and thirsting for God would be satisfied and filled. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We now have opportunity to give of your gifts for God's church and kingdom and then we'll sing together Psalter 304, 304, 1, 4, and 6.
How can I know for sure? Love the congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. This question is a question all of us have asked or thought. Usually, we ask it when we're anxious about something. You think, children, about when you get sick or, or maybe when you get hurt. And maybe you're, you, you go to your mom and your dad and, and they tell you not to worry. It will get better. But, but how can you know for sure? You want some proof, something, something that can make you know for certain that you will get better. And we can have that question about all kinds of things. We can have it even about the gospel, about the good news of salvation in and through Jesus Christ. How can I know for sure the gospel is true? How can I know for sure that the promises of the gospel will come true? How can I know for sure that they will come true for me? Maybe you've asked that question. Maybe not out loud, but perhaps in your heart. Perhaps you've been raised in the church. You've been raised in a Christian family. And you've heard the gospel promises all your life. You've heard about forgiveness. You've heard about eternal life. You've heard about heaven. But you're wondering, is it really true? I, I mean, the world out there sometimes can look pretty good. Aren't we better off just enjoying it? While we can. Or or maybe you haven't been raised in the church. Maybe the gospel is fairly new to you. And it all sounds wonderful, but but of course that's if it's true. Or maybe you're a Christian. You're a believer like Abram was, slogging through life, but you don't see, you don't experience the blessings that the gospel promised. All you see is wilderness behind you and in front of you. You believe the gospel, but but living by faith isn't easy. How can you know for sure that the gospel is true, that the promises of the gospel will come true also for you? What is the answer? What is the answer to such gospel anxiety? Well, our passage this morning, Genesis 15, especially verses 7 through 21, gives us the answer. You see, Abram asks that very question in verse 8. The Lord had just promised to give Abram the land where he was living, the land of Canaan, to inherit it. The Lord had already promised that to Abram several times, along with several other promises, including promises that God would make Abraham a great nation and and, and bless him and, and make him a blessing to all the families and nations of the earth. They were amazing promises And ultimately, the Bible makes very clear that they were gospel promises, promises that had to do with a Savior, and that had to do with salvation, and that had to do with blessing, and eternal life, and heaven. And perhaps you remember that from the last last baptism service here when we looked at Genesis 12 and how the Lord called Abram out of Ur. Abram understood what these promises were about, and he responded to those gospel promises in faith. He believed the Lord. He believed his promises. But here's the thing, he had not yet received the fulfillment of those promises. The fact is, he wasn't a great nation. The fact is, he and his wife, Sarah, didn't even have a child. And they were very old. He was living in the land, but he didn't own even an inch of it. And so in verse 8, Abram asked the question, whereby or how shall I know that I shall inherit it? In other words, Abram was asking God how he can be sure that these wonderful gospel promises are true. And you can imagine the Israelites in the wilderness, those people for whom the book of Genesis was originally written. You can imagine the Israelites thinking and wondering the same thing. God had delivered them out of Egypt and he had promised to bring them into the land of Canaan. But where were they? They were in the wilderness, slogging along. They understood Abram's question 
and, and his gospel anxiety very well. How shall we know? How can we and our children know for sure that we shall inherit the land of Canaan? That God's gospel promises are true. And we're in the same situation, aren't we? How can we, how can these children that have just been baptized know for sure that God's gospel promises signed and sealed in their baptisms are true? That through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, we shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. We shall inherit eternal life. Well, God's answer in this passage is his covenant with Abraham. Genesis 15 verse 18 says the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. And that's what the whole passage is from verses 7 to the end is really about. The dividing the animals, the, the passing between the pieces was a covenant ceremony. The Lord had called Abram out of Ur and made promises to him. But now, in, in this chapter, he formally enters into a covenant, a binding relationship with Abram. Why? So that Abram, and so that the Israelites, and so that we, here today, and our children might know for sure the gospel promises are true, and so live in confident reliance upon the Lord. And that's what we hope to see from our text, Genesis 15, 7 through 21, under the theme, God's covenant with Abraham answers our gospel anxiety. God's covenant with Abraham answers our gospel anxiety. How so? Well, in the first place, his covenant confirms his power to keep his gospel promises. We see this especially in, in verses 13 to 16, but it's good to review verses 8 through 12 to help set the scene. When Abram asked the Lord in verse 8, Lord God, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? The Lord tells Abram to take several animals to him. A three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And so Abram takes those animals, and what does he do? He kills them, and he cuts them in half, except for the birds. Somehow he knew that's, that's what he was supposed to do with them. Maybe the Lord told him, or maybe he just recognized what the Lord was, do, was doing. Because this ceremony was sometimes done with man-made covenants in those days. The animals would be cut in half and they'd be laid opposite each other so that there was a path between them. And then the people who, who, who were involved in the covenant, they would pass between the pieces as a symbol of their commitment. Of their commitment. It may well be, as some commentators think, that it was a way of saying, if I don't keep the promises that I've made in this covenant, then let me be torn apart like these animals. But whatever the case, it, it symbolizes their commitment and it shows us how serious covenants are. And so Abram, he does this, he lays the pieces of the animals opposite each other and then what happens? Well, children, if I asked you what happens if, you, if there's a dead animal outside, what would you say? Eventually, what happens? What comes to check out the dead animal? Vultures, right? And that's what happened here. Vultures come, and, and so Abram drives them away. And then when the sun was about to go down, verse 12 says, A deep sleep fell upon Abram. And lo, behold, a horror of great darkness fell upon him. So that's the scene. It's, it's a scene of death. It's a scene of darkness. It's a solemn scene. And in the midst of that solemn scene, the Lord speaks to Abram. And he says this, verses 13 to 16. Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them 400 years. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge. And afterwards shall they come out with great substance, and thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace. Thou shalt be buried in a good old age, but in the fourth generation they shall come hither again for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. What's the Lord doing here? He's showing, he's showing Abraham how the gospel promise, how his promise is going to be fulfilled. And, and, and the way it's being going to be fulfilled confirms for us his power to keep, to fulfill his gospel promises. You, you think about what, Ab what the Lord told Abraham. Not exactly comforting words. He tells Abram that his seed, his descendants shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs. So they're not going to live, be living in this land that God has just promised to Abram. 
They're going to be living somewhere else, in a land that, that, that belongs to other people. And what's worse, the, the people who own that land are also going to, to enslave them, and they're going to afflict them, and they're going to oppress them. In other words, Abraham's descendants are going to be in a seemingly hopeless situation. They're going to be in some ways like those dead and cut up animals, basically food for vultures. And what could seem more impossible at a time like that? What could seem more impossible than the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham? But with God, nothing shall be impossible. After roughly 400 years, God will judge that nation, the nation they would serve. And not only that, he would make it, he will make it so that the people, Abraham's descendants, come out not poor, but rich. And they will come back again to the land of Canaan, the land God promised. In other words, God will fulfill his promise in the face of seeming impossibility when everything looks hopeless. And that confirms, you see, his power to, 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 to keep, to fulfill his gospel promises. Yes, he was speaking here especially about his promise to give the physical land of Canaan. And you may think, well, that has nothing to do with us. But it does. It does. Because you can't separate that promise from all of his other gospel promises. They're all bound up together in God's covenant with Abraham. God's covenant with Abraham confirms his power to keep all his gospel promises. That's why you aren't and I am not beyond hope. You can feel like you are. You can look inside yourself and you can see coldness and you can see indifference toward God. And you can pray about it and nothing changes. You still feel cold. You still feel indifferent. You still feel dead. And it can feel like you're beyond hope. It can feel like maybe the promise of salvation through faith in Christ Jesus, just those promises aren't true. At least not for you. But that's not true. You're not beyond hope. The gospel is true. Its promises are true also for you and for me. Whether you're still in bondage to sin and to Satan or whether you've been freed from that bondage but you find yourself now struggling through life, struggling through the wilderness, longing for that promised rest and not seeing it. No matter who you are, no matter how old you are or how young you are, no matter where you are, no matter what you've done, no matter how hopeless you feel, you're not beyond hope because nothing is impossible with God. That's what God's covenant with Abraham confirms. It confirms his power to keep his gospel promises. He is able to save you from your bondage to sin and to Satan, no matter how long you've been in that bondage. And he is able to bring you all the way to glory, all the way home according to his promise. He is able to do that for everyone here. He's able to do that for your children. He's able to do that for the chief of sinners. That's what you get to tell your little ones as they grow up. Yes, you must tell them, you must teach them that they are sinners, that they are children of wrath in themselves, but we must also teach them that they are not beyond hope. God's gospel promises to them, signed and sealed in their baptism, are promises he can keep, no matter, no matter how impossible, no matter how hopeless it may seem to them, or even perhaps at times to you. How important it is to teach them that. You never know when God might use that truth to grip their hearts so that they turn to him in repentance and faith and also to enable them to persevere in that way all their life long. God's covenant with Abraham confirms his power to keep his gospel promises. But maybe you think, well, if that's true, then why is it taking so long? Why doesn't Christ just come back like he promised and put an end to all the suffering of his people? Why didn't God just give the land to Abraham? Abraham would be blessed, certainly. He would go to his fathers in peace, be buried in a good old age. He would die an old man, but he would die without having received the promise. Why? Why would God wait until the fourth generation to keep his promise? 
Well, he tells us, doesn't he? For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. The Amorites here refer to the people dwelling, living in Canaan, in the promised land. And whatever else we can learn from those words, this much is clear. God's delay, his long suffering is not a sign of his lack of power to keep his gospel promises. No, if anything, it's a sign of the greatness of his power. It's a power that can and yes, will save those who repent of sin and believe in Christ. But it's also a power that will judge those who refuse to do so in his time. The point is, the delay of the inheritance and the delay of Christ's coming is no reason to doubt his power to save. It's no, reason, it's no reason to doubt that. It's a reason to turn away from sin and to trust in the Lord before it's too late, before the day of judgment. And it's a reason to persevere in faith. He is able to keep his gospel promises. Do you see with me? Do you see with me how God's covenant with Abram confirms that? But maybe you say, well, yes, I I see that. I understand God is able to keep his promises. But that's not what I worry about. What I worry about is, will he? Is he really committed to those promises? Also for me. Yes, he is. And that's what we hope to see from our second point from this passage. God's covenant with Abraham not only confirms his power to keep his gospel promises, it also secondly seals his commitment to his gospel promises. And that's especially what verse 17 is teaching. Look at what it says there in verse 17. After the Lord says those words that we just looked at, explaining how the the gospel promise would be fulfilled for Abraham's uh, seed. It says there, verse 17, And it came to pass that when the sun went down and it was dark, behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between those pieces. Well, what's going on here? Sounds kind of strange, doesn't it? Well, remember, remember what Abram did with the animals? Remember, he, he divided them in two and he made a pathway between them. He laid each half opposite of e- each other. Well, this was a covenant ceremony. When two people made a covenant with each other, as I mentioned earlier, they would seal their commitment to their promises by passing between those pieces of those dead animals. But you see what happens here is that God himself passes between the pieces. The smoking furnace and the burning lamp represent God. Just like the pillar of of cloud and the pillar of fire for the people of Israel in the wilderness. And so God here is binding himself to his promises. His covenant with Abraham seals his commitment to his gospel promises. And that means he really is committed to them. Also for you. And you. And for all of us. He's committed to them absolutely, no matter what. You see, Abram didn't pass between the pieces. Only the Lord did. He did it alone, by himself. Why? Why? What was it meant to teach Abram? What was it meant to teach the Israelites in Egypt and later in the wilderness? What is it meant to teach us? It's meant to teach us that he's committed to his promises no matter what. And that was true of the promise that was especially in view here. The promise of the land of Canaan to Abram and his seed. But it's just as true of his promise of salvation. Of his promise of a heavenly inheritance. To all who by grace put their trust and confidence in Jesus Christ. And it's just as true of his promise to guide and protect and help them all along the way. All their lives long to his promise to never forsake them. It's true of all of his gospel promises. Because you see they're all part and parcel of his covenant with Abraham. He's committed to his gospel promises. No matter what. His commitment is unbreakable. And that means that none of us have to worry that he will not keep his promises. We do not have to fear that he might be unwilling to save us when we look to him in faith and we look away from ourselves. We do not have to fear that he might be unwilling to forgive us. We do not have to fear that he might be unwilling to help us in our needs or or to preserve us in our troubles. 
We do not have to fear that he might not finish the good work that he has begun in us when he has begun it. That doesn't mean we don't need to repent and believe. Don't misunderstand. We do. There's no salvation without repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, without confessing and turning away from sin and trusting in Christ for your salvation. The Bible is very clear. It's very clear. If you refuse to repent and believe, you will die under the judgment and wrath of God just like many of the Israelites died in the wilderness under the judgment and wrath of God. They never entered the promised land. But it wasn't because God wasn't committed to his promises. It was because they refused to believe. You see, the point is, God's commitment to his gospel promises is not based on our repentance and faith. No, God's commitment to his promises is what calls and encourages us to repentance and faith. The fact that he alone passed between the pieces tells you and me that he's committed absolutely no matter what to his gospel promises. You have nothing to fear. He won't turn you away when you come to him. He won't turn anyone away, no matter how horrible a sinner you may be, no matter how far you may have fallen into sin. God is committed to his gospel promises no matter what. And that's not an encouragement to sin. That's a call to turn from sin and to grab hold of God in faith. The authors of our form understood that. And that's why they wrote those beautiful words that we sometimes through weakness fall into sin. We must not therefore despair of God's mercy nor continue in sin since baptism is a seal and undoubted testimony that we have an eternal covenant of grace with God. God's committed to his gospel promises no matter what. And that calls us all to turn from sin to turn from sin and to cast ourselves on the mercy of God, we will not be put to shame. But it also calls, calls believers who are here and are going through difficult times to persevere in faith. Maybe like Job, you're going through a dark time. It feels like God is against you. And you don't know what to do. You've tried everything. You've tried prayer. You've tried getting help. But nothing changes. It just seems to get darker and darker and darker. And you feel ready to give up. You're afraid maybe God isn't really committed. He's not really committed to his gospel promises to you. And look. Look here. Look at this smoking furnace. Look at this burning lamp passing between the pieces alone. And listen, listen to God's still, small voice to you this morning. What's he saying? He's saying, I'm committed. I'm committed. It may not feel like it to you right now, but I am committed no matter what. So trust me. That's what his covenant with Abram is, is saying to us. He's committed to his gospel promises. And he's calling us to trust him. Even when we can't see him. Even when we can't feel him. Even when everything is pitch dark and we feel like Job, like he is against us. He's committed to all his gospel promises absolutely no matter what, and he's committed wholeheartedly. Wholeheartedly. You know how wholeheartedly he's committed? You know? He's so wholeheartedly committed that he gave himself to death in order to secure the fulfillment of his gospel promises. That's what all those dead animals and cut up animals ultimately point to. They ultimately point to the death of Jesus Christ, the death of God the Son in our flesh as the all-sufficient sacrifice for the sins of his people. And it's the same with the water of baptism. 
It ultimately points to the blood of Christ that cleanses us from sin. That's how wholeheartedly committed God is to his gospel promises. What a wonder! And what an encouragement for us and for these children. What an encouragement it is to put all of our trust in God and in his son Jesus Christ for our salvation. To put no confidence in anything in ourselves or anyone or anything else. God really is committed to his promises absolutely and wholeheartedly. He has done everything necessary to grant all the blessings of his salvation to unworthy sinners. That's how committed God is. And his covenant with Abraham seals that commitment. Well, then let's not live for this world. Let's not live for this world. And let's teach our children and call others by our words and by our own examples not to live for this world either, but to live as strangers and pilgrims in the world, to live by faith, faith in all all of God's gospel promises looking to Christ. But maybe you say it's so hard. It's so hard living here. How can I know for sure? Well, let me... Let me point you to one last thing that we see from God's covenant with Abraham very quickly. God's covenant with Abraham not only confirms his power to keep his gospel promises and seals his commitment to them, it also guarantees his fulfillment of them. Here I just want to draw your attention to verses 18 through 21, but especially just verse 18. That's what I'll read here now. A verse that explains what was happening in the verses before and now gives a concluding statement. In the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land. From the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates. And then it goes on to describe the land in terms of the different groups of people that lived there at the time. But I want us mainly to notice just the one word in verse 18. The little word, half, half. Unto thy seed have I given this land. God doesn't say here, unto thy seed I might give this land. He doesn't even say, I will give this land. He says, unto thy seed I have given this land. You, you, you hear the certainty in that? In other words, God's, what we learn here is that God's covenant with Abraham guarantees his fulfillment of his gospel promises. It guarantees it completely. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. It's as good as done. It reminds me, it reminds me of what Paul says in Ephesians 2. He reminds believers there of what they, what they were, dead in trespasses and sins. But then he says this, but God, but God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, has quickened us, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you are saved. Now listen carefully. Has also raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You notice how he says it. He doesn't say he will raise us up together or he will make us sit together in the heavenly places. He says he has raised us up. He has made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In other words, he's, he writes as if we're already there, as if believers are already there. As if heaven is already ours. It's as good as done. How could he be so confident? Because he knew the fulfillment of God's gospel promises was certain. That's what God's covenant with Abraham tells us. And Paul knew God's covenant with Abraham. 
It completely guarantees the fulfillment of his promises. It guarantees it by the blood of Jesus Christ. He is the guarantee of this covenant. And so, congregation, what's the answer to gospel anxiety? It's God's covenant with Abraham. Do you see that with me? How can we, how can these children know for sure that God's gospel promises, signed and sealed in baptism, are true? That through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, we shall inherit the kingdom of heaven and receive eternal life. They can know. We can know. You can know. Because of God's covenant with Abraham. It confirms to us his power to keep his gospel promises. It seals his commitment to his gospel promises. And it guarantees his fulfillment of his gospel promises. So, may I close with the words of Jesus Christ to Thomas. Be not unbelieving, but believing. Amen.